You are listening to Feminist Current. I'm Megan Murphy. I started this podcast over a decade ago in 2012. At the time, few were talking about the things I wanted to talk about. Feminists who were critical of third wave feminism, of the sex industry, of attempts to frame things like objectification and pornography as empowering, who wanted to focus on women's material reality, who were concerned about encroaching gender identity ideology and legislation, and who wanted to protect women's spaces had not only been pushed out of mainstream media and conversation, but out of the modern feminist movement and the left. I wanted to provide a space for these conversations, a space for women who felt silenced or who didn't have access to legacy media or online platforms to share their work, their activism, their views, and their realities. So I did. For over a decade, Feminist Current has been a lone voice of dissent in Canada. I've expanded my work to additional platforms, but Feminist Current remains a pivotal platform for and archive of women's work, movements, and dissenting voices. And we want to continue, but we need your help. Feminist Current has been ad-free, government grant-free, investor-free, wealthy benefactor-free, and fully independent for years. We rely solely on individual donors, so people like you, to sustain our work. Please consider signing up for a monthly or one-time donation by going to feministcurrent.com and clicking the Donate tab. It means the world and truly is the only thing that can keep us going. Thank you so much for supporting our work and women's speech. Sasha Ayed is a teen therapist who started becoming concerned when she began hearing about so-called trans kids and learned about rapid-onset gender dysphoria, ROGD. She began looking into the trans trend more deeply and became a founding board member of several organizations fighting for a more cautious, science-based approach, including Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine, the Gender Exploratory Therapy Association, and Genspect. Sasha is the co-host of Gender, a Wider Lens podcast, and author of a new book co-authored by Lisa Marciano and Stella O'Malley called When Kids Say They're Trans. I spoke with her recently about what's really behind teenagers' desire to transition and what parents can do when dealing with a teen identifying as transgender. Sasha, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I'm so glad to be connecting with you finally. Yeah, me too, Megan. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, first of all, congrats on the book um, for people listening. It's called um, When Kids Say They're Trans, and it's a guide for parents, which I think is so important. Like I can I can only imagine how many parents are going to be so relieved to have access to something like this. Yeah. I, I have, as I know you have as well, I've talked to 
so many parents over the years who are really, really distressed yeah, about this absolutely. issue and how it's impacting their kids and, and they just don't know what to do. And it's really, it's really heartbreaking. So, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, we, we felt like this was a really important book. So I wrote this along with Lisa Marciano and Stella O'Malley. Um, and we have been kind of working in this area for many years and we've just been bombarded probably like yourself and many others of us who are speaking out by parents who are, I mean, not only, um, feeling nervous and scared and worried, but also feeling like the institutions which have historically kind of trusted parents to be the important kind of authority figures in their children's life, um, are undermining their parental authority and their parental knowledge of their child. And so parents felt really backed into a corner in a lot of ways and, and pressured um, to make decisions for their children and their mental health that they did not feel was best. So we we felt it was really important to give parents a book. You know, I, I know you know, over the last, you know, 10 years or so, a lot of resources have developed for families who are, you know, skeptical of this affirmation model, but there's something different about just having a book, a tangible kind of like one-stop shop to give you guidance and practical strategies and all of the information and research that parents need to know. So we're we're really glad to have written this book and we hope that it helps a lot of families and we're, we're already hearing some positive feedback. So that's great to hear. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it will help lots of families. Um, you You are a teen therapist, I'm wondering how you first came to this issue of gender identity and, and specifically the issue of so-called trans kids or, you know, medically transitioning kids, socially transitioning kids, kids identifying as transgender. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, actually, you, you play a part in this story, Megan, so I'm, I'm just really <laughs> glad to be speaking with you and I'm happy to talk a little bit about that. So. Um, yes, I'm a teen therapist, not to be confused with a teenager who pretends to be a therapist. So <laughs> I'm a real Like a adult. teenage detective. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like the Hardy Boys or something. Um, <laughs> Cute. Yeah, so I mean, I've been working with adolescents for many, many years, over 13 years now. And prior to working in this gender area specifically, I worked with a lot of children on the autism spectrum, which kind of funny enough primed me very much for what we're seeing now with gender dysphoria. And I worked with adults who have intellectual disabilities and many of them were young adults in their early 20s. And um, I also worked with domestic violence and sexual abuse victims. So like so many intersecting areas almost primed me for this work, which is very interesting. And then most recently, prior to starting my private practice, I was working in a middle school with uh, sixth, seventh and eighth graders as a school counselor. And um, what happened for me is that I started to notice kind of two things concurrently. On one hand, I was starting to see in like the mid 2010s, these media reports about trans kids, which conceptually was a new idea, like even through undergrad and graduate school in my training to become a therapist, the concept of a transgender child was just not something we ever talked about. We talked about gender identity disorder as it used to be called in the DSM. 
Um, but we, we never really thought of kids as being trans. We thought about transition as a series of steps that people take to relieve their gender identity disorder or later gender dysphoria. So I thought that that was a really interesting shift in the way the concept was being presented. And at the same time, working with these middle schoolers, I started to see one or two kids that I knew very well, because I had already been there for a couple of years, females, starting to say things like, I don't think I'm a girl anymore, or I want to wear a binder, or I'd like you to start calling me this other name. And so I, I saw these things happening, like, on one hand, like through the culture, and then I was seeing it, you know, in my own population of kids. And I just became really interested in the issue. I had always been fascinated by kind of like group behavior and um, belief systems and things along those lines. I almost went into social psychology, which of course is the study of group behavior. So I just found it really interesting. And I started following all of these parent blogs, as you'll, of course, remember, Fourth Wave Now, mm -hmm. and then also some of the feminist discourse in like 2015, including um, your program and your writing. Mm -hmm. And I, I started to become particularly concerned when I realized that therapists and doctors, rather than treating this as an identity exploration, or maybe even something with peer mediated influences, were rubber stamping it right away as though you know, if a kid says that they're trans, they literally are trans. And the next thing is to immediately affirm and sometimes to push the family into medical interventions. And I found that to be so insane, frankly, and against everything we know about adolescence. And I remember finding an interview on your podcast, the Feminist Current podcast with Lisa Marciano in 2016 called mm -hmm. The Trouble with Trans and Kids. Wow. And mid-interview, Megan, I stopped it and I looked her up on the internet and I contacted her and I said, oh my God, I'm a therapist. I'm following this too. I'd love to connect with you. And we <laughs> got in touch. Like she, she emailed me back almost right away. And since then we became, I mean, fast friends and kind of co-concerned colleagues. And along with Stella O'Malley, who runs Genspect and who's um, done so much important work around gender, including this really interesting BBC film called Trans Kids, It's Time to Talk. We just teamed up and started just being in contact all the time. And we have since started a lot of important projects together. Um, Stella started Genspect. We have started an association for therapists who also take kind of an I guess you'd call it like a traditional psychotherapeutic approach to gender dysphoria. And we run parenting events. And of course, we we wrote this book together. So I have to say thank you to you for being one of the first people really on the scene, one of the first journalists to cover this um, with kind of a grounding in, in reality and with some foresight about the kind of dangerous ramifications of taking this gender identity belief system at face value. Oh, I'm so glad to hear this. I'm so glad that this is how you two are able to connect. I mean, I would be glad for you to connect anyway that it happened, of course. But I mean, I think <laughs> Lisa, is, Lisa is so great. And she has been working on this for a long time. And I have so much respect for her. So I'm, I'm, I'm so glad to hear all this. Yeah. Um, how long have you been working as a, a therapist with teens? 
Um, over 13 years, and I started my practice around gender specifically in 2016. So, hmm. um, I mean, I remember when I, first of all, Lisa, Lisa Marciano, who's written a lot of brilliant work around this and has worked with some dysphoric people at this point. When I first met her, she wasn't working. Well, she doesn't work with adolescents. She only works with adults. And so I remember, you know, setting up my practice at the time, I was the only therapist, to my knowledge, who explicitly presented my work as a kind of non-literal affirming approach to gender. And I started in 2016. And let me tell you, the second I got my website up, I was just absolutely bombarded with very frantic parent requests. And, you know, something that I hadn't shared with you when I sh- you know, explain my backstory is that I had worked with a, um, a young woman at the middle school who was starting to experience gender dysphoria. And, you know, without sharing any details of, of our work together, by taking a slow, careful approach, affirming that it was okay for her to, you know, be kind of a quirky, she, she was not a very gender conforming kid. And by just affirming that that is okay, And as she started to develop some friendships in person, because she was a bit of a loner, her dysphoria resolved. So, you know, I I naively thought, well, this one case study is kind of a precedent for how I might work with other dysphoric kids, um, not realizing how incredibly complicated some of the, the cases were. But generally, I've been working with adolescents for over a decade, and gender specifically since 2016. And since 2016, that has been what I do full time in my private practice is work around gender with adolescents and a lot of kind of parent support and parent coaching. That's amazing. Um, I think that for probably I'm guessing most therapists, they're too afraid to take that approach. Um, I mean, I know you're not in Canada, but in Canada there was a bill that was passed some years ago that you know, essentially would allow for criminalization of Mm -hmm. therapists and medical practitioners um, who did not take the affirmation approach to kids who were were calling themselves trans. Um, I guess I'm curious to know how you got away with this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it's interesting because on one hand, I, I went into this work pretty naively thinking that there's just a big misunderstanding going on. And if I can share my experiences as a clinician and kind of talk about what I'm seeing on the ground, this will all get cleared up. And many other therapists will have the light bulb moment, just like I did, right? Just like I did through my own investigation. And that, um, you know, we'll be able to correct course. And I don't think I realized how much of a concerted effort exists on the part of a certain kind of branch of trans activism and extreme gender identity politics to stamp out, you know, regular therapy for these types of issues. Um, I will say I I am aware of the legislation in Canada and it is, it is absolutely terrifying and it's a real disservice to the patients who need genuine nuanced psychotherapeutic support. Um, But here in the US, you know, we we have a very different system and state by state, you know, each state does it a little bit differently. 
But even in places here where there is, you know, a quote, conversion therapy ban where they've tacked on gender identity along with sexual orientation, there are always clauses included that leave room for exploration. And of course, the term exploration is somewhat vague and subjective, so it's not really clear what that means. Um, but, you know, there's there's always the ability to work in a therapeutic manner with a client. And particularly, I want to emphasize that the actual way therapy looks between myself and my clients and my patients is an incredibly gentle approach that is very validating of their experiences and taking them seriously. So there's nothing confrontational or, um, you know, a, a, aggressive or abrasive about doing regular therapy, right? And, and I want to just kind of broaden our view a little bit. If, if a client comes in with any kind of really strongly held belief, whether it's a religious conviction or some sort of political belief, the job of the therapist is never to directly argue or debate or challenge the client. It's to try and help the client understand themselves better and understand all of the different meanings and um, significance of how they operate in their life and what beliefs they hold and what behaviors they hold. So what I'm doing in therapy is actually very normal, regular, compassionate and caring and explorative yeah. therapy. Um, but you know, as, as you know, the, the word conversion therapy has really conflated and confused a lot of, of concepts. Mm. And I have had my license formally attacked, um, twice. Mm. One of them was a trans activist who I've come to know through my, you know, relationship with a lot of the sexologists and kind of old school practitioners as a kind of a well-known trans activist therapist who goes to conferences and shouts people down and, I've never met this individual. I have no idea who they are, but they um, sent a letter to my board and I had to hire attorneys and luckily that got dismissed, but it was really scary and it was really intimidating. Um, and I think part of what we're seeing is kind of like the chilling effect. Um, and then the other time that my license was attacked, it was really, really disturbing because it was a former colleague of mine who I felt I knew well, who could have you know, contacted me to have a conversation and ask me like, hey, from one therapist to another, I'd like to understand the way you're practicing. Or to me, it seems as though the practice you're doing isn't right. Can we talk about it? But instead, you know, she submitted a complaint against my license and that also was dismissed. So I, I want to just lift up if there are any therapists listening to this. To my understanding, if you are practicing ethically, you have nothing to worry about because there's no precedent in the U.S. of a therapist being penalized for doing exploratory normal psychotherapy when the presenting patient or the presenting problem is gender. So um, I think there there's something about my personality. I don't tend to think about risks before I do things, and that's gotten me in trouble a lot throughout <laughs> my life. <laughs> so it's like a gift and a curse. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I just, my belief is like, if I'm acting from a place of integrity and I, I'm treating my patients with a lot of care and thoughtfulness, I don't really think about what others may say or what attacks I might receive because I genuinely believe after years of researching this issue that I'm doing what I believe to be the right thing. Yeah. I'm curious to know what kinds of stories you started hearing 
from the kids, the teens that you were speaking to in respect to their their transness, you know, how was yeah. it that they were determining that they were transgender? Yeah, that's that's a, such a great question because I um, when I worked in this middle school, I'll give you a little more context. It was a, a charter school in Houston, Texas, and the charter school system there um, attracts a lot of you know um, immigrant students, minority students, low income families who really, um, they have to kind of enter a sort of like lottery system to get their kids into the school. And um, it was a population of kids that's really different from who we tend to hear about these days regarding gender dysphoria, particularly in the U.S. So there's this myth, which I don't think is accurate, that the sudden onset adolescent teenage girl gender dysphoria is kind of like this you know, educated, overly coddled, upper class liberal family um, origin. And I don't think that's always the case. But but anyway, so at the charter school, it was a kind of a conservative immigrant population of families, I would say. And I I started our school's first GSA at the time, um, because I, I knew that there were some kids who were questioning their sexuality and didn't really have anywhere to go around that. So I started a GSA and it attracted kind of a, you know, the type of kids that you'd imagine, like pretty creative, quirky, really intelligent kids who were there for a variety of reasons, including kids that just saw themselves as allies who kind of found a home within, you know, LGBTQ plus 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 community, right? And and what they were talking about, um, were really interesting concepts that were pretty much all coming from Tumblr and Reddit. So, you know, kids would come into our club meetings after school and say, so I saw these gender bracelets on Instagram. And um, this was a, a specific conversation. And she was like, yeah, you know, the gender bracelets, there's like six of them and you wear the bracelet that corresponds with whatever identity you feel you have that day. And so you could kind of change out the bracelets or swap them out so that people know what pronouns to use for you. And we were having a conversation and I was trying to be very mindful of, uh, you know, how vulnerable and like significant these questions were, you know? And so I, I just was raising lots of questions like, so you know, what would it mean to be a guy one day and a girl the next, you know? And I was like, what do you guys think? Is this like an emotions thing? Like if you're feeling particularly grumpy, are you a guy? <laughs> like what, what exactly does this mm -hmm. mean? And um, when it comes to that particular girl that I told you about earlier, she was absolutely like um, an anime loving kind of very kind of an, uh, an, an a unique girl, let's put it that way. And she was spending a lot of time on the internet and she admitted, she said, I'm, you know, I'm learning about binders from the internet. And she would come in with all this jargon, like tons and tons of definitions and labels. And so, you know, at that stage, that's what I was hearing about. And it was very much, you know, Tumblr was the thing at the time. And there was almost no talk of detransition. That was not even a concept people heard of. Um, and it was very intertwined with a certain type of social justice activism, which I say is like it's a superficial social justice activism. And it was a lot of just kind of identity labels that kids found interesting. And there was not a lot of depth or 
kind of gravitas to anything they were saying. It was all very superficial. Mm-hmm. And we've also been learning that autistic kids tend to be at particular risk for, or, you know, perhaps lean towards trans identity. Can you explain why that is? Yeah, I think there are so many reasons. And frankly, you know, I want to preface this by saying in the world of kind of sudden onset gender dysphoria, ROGD, all of this is conjecture because we really don't have any data about this population. But having a background in autism, I think, set me up to maybe make some connections that I think people will resonate with. I think the biggest common denominator that we see in a lot of trans-identified kids, whether they have an autism diagnosis or not, is the kind of need they're meeting for community and connection and belonging. And kids on the autism spectrum, particularly the kinds of kids that we see playing with gender, they tend to be very intelligent. They tend to be um, kind of going to maybe like schools with neurotypical kids. And so they're in an interesting position in that they have really unique um, needs in terms of how they socialize and how they think and how they make sense of themselves and others. But they're plopped in the middle of a bunch of neurotypical kids who understand some of the kind of nuances of social interaction and some of the more subtle ways that kids kind of navigate the social landscape during adolescence. And so I think one of the biggest things is that kids on the autism spectrum really want to connect and don't really know how to do it. Mm. They're not great at maintaining relationships over a long term. They do not know necessarily how to kind of like share attention and conversation back and forth in an appropriate way. And they tend to be particularly, you know, kids who are interested in socializing but don't know how, they tend to be really good at figuring out systems and imitating. So something that a lot of autistic girls will say is that, you know, ever since I was young, I've been observing girls around me to try to figure out, like, what are the rules of the game here? Mm -hmm. How does one connect? And when you have that type of mind that likes to put things into a systematic process that you can understand and follow man, the trans thing is just perfect for you because there are a set of rules, there's language rules, there's behavior rules, there's labels and definitions, there's even corresponding beautiful flags that go with each label. Mm -hmm. And if you have this feeling of being uncomfortable in your body, then there's a clear definition and language for how to make sense of that, you know? So that's kind of one aspect, like, the the social piece. Then another aspect is this kind of systematic rule following type of behavior. I guess a third area would be very black and white thinking. So another thing to note is kids on the autism spectrum already tend to be pretty gender nonconforming and they may be black and white thinkers. Like, i.e., if I'm a female, but I don't really like a lot of typical girly things, maybe I'm actually not a girl, maybe I'm a boy. So there's the black and white thinking. Mm -hmm. Then on top of that, you have um, the sensory issues. A lot of kids on the spectrum are um, really sensitive to, like, sound and physical inputs, like issues around texture, issues around, like, how things feel on their body. And that can make you feel, A, out of your body. It can make you feel disconnected from your body. 
And that's part of the kind of trans narrative too. Like if you feel like you don't fit into your body or if you don't feel comfortable in your body, maybe it's because you're trans, you know? So there's so many reasons. I mean, one more thing that I will just mention is um, being emotionally dysregulated is very common in kids with autism. So they don't understand their emotions very well and they tend to have what seems like disproportionate reactions to uh, a trigger or something. So whereas another kid, maybe they get teased at school and they can blow it off and then connect with their friends and be fine. If a kid on the autism spectrum kind of has this outsized reaction to it and they feel um, really unsure of how to manage their emotions, that can lead to a lot of depression and distress and general dysphoria, right? Not gender dysphoria, general dysphoria, all of which are used as kind of markers that you may be trans. So, um, you know, not to mention how like literal autistic kids are. So, you know, it's known that kids on the autism spectrum don't understand, for example, figures of speech or metaphorical language. And so then you take the pronouns thing and you say, as long, Megan, as you call me he, then that's as good as you actually believing I'm a male. Mm. And so this surface version of the language rules feels very much, you know, good enough and real to the autistic trans identified person. So whereas, you know, a neurotypical trans identified person, they might know like, okay, this person doesn't literally think I'm male, but they're kind of doing it to be polite or they're just trying to respect my pronouns. But if you have a very literal thinking brain, you might think, well, as long as everyone's calling me he, then they actually think I'm literally male. So those are a few of, of probably many more things that I think makes this population particularly kind of attracted to the trans identity. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. Um, I'm curious to know what you know about the trajectory of this gender dysphoria diagnosis. This term, as far as I understand it, is relatively new. Do you know mm-hmm. sort of where that came from when when it started being used and, and particularly around kids? Like how are how are kids getting diagnosed with gender dysphoria nowadays? Well, you know, I'm not the best person to ask about this. I think somebody like a Dr. Ken Zucker, who you've you've probably talked to. um, Yeah, yeah, I know him. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, he's very involved in um, kind of development of diagnostic criteria around gender. I know that um, childhood gender identity disorder was an existing condition in previous versions of the DSM. But my understanding is that in an attempt to... Um, kind of include more stakeholders and activists in and kind of destigmatizing the diagnosis. It's kind of shifted more and more towards, um, you know, being viewed as uh, like a kind of a sexual identity issue rather than a mental health diagnosis. And I mean, one of the things that we do know about childhood onset gender dysphoria is that it resolves in 60 to 90% of cases. And So everything that is being kind of advocated by these affirmative care proponents to intervene so young is literally contradicted by the data that we have had for many years. So, you know, I'm not I'm not exactly sure how children ended up with a gender dysphoria diagnosis, but 
even if they do have the diagnosis, it certainly doesn't indicate that the best course of treatment is to affirm and medicalize. Mm-hmm. I, you, you point out in the book that, that young kids often engage in magical thinking. So we're talking about prepubescent kids mm-hmm. now. Um, mm-hmm. And so this is, I'm quoting right now, so it's relatively easy for them to believe they are the opposite sex. Their ability to take on the role of the opposite sex can be impressively insistent, consistent, and persistent. And yeah. I remember one of the things that I sort of started noticing quite a few years back is that the way that some adults, including, you know, teachers, even including parents, um, and, you know, uh, trans activists, et cetera, politicians, were saying things like, kids know what they are, you know, mm-hmm. we have to trust kids. And I feel like that's a relatively modern concept. Is that true? I'm curious yeah. about why people started thinking. Yeah. I don't know that that's a, a thing that people were saying prior. You know, kids know what they are. Yeah. That's a really interesting angle. Um, there definitely seems to be, as my colleague and co-author Stella often says, a shift from being child-centered to child-led, right? Mm. So kids are really put in the driver's seat of this gender affirmation protocol. And you, you see this in some of the kind of most zealot affirmative clinicians who are kind of pushing for younger and younger interventions that they really seem to put a huge amount of stock into the child self-perception. And, you know, I'm not sure exactly where this has come from, but, you know, I am reminded of, you know, many kind of, um, stories in the history of psychiatry and mental health, um, industry, I guess, where when there is, a denial of a problem. Sometimes we swing the pendulum too far to the other, you know, side of the the spectrum and overshoot. So for example, you know, I know that for many decades, childhood sexual abuse was brushed under the rug, was denied, was not taken seriously. And kids were not believed when they came forward, for example, with, you know, reports that they had been uh, molested or abused oftentimes by a relative. Like, I think you'll know this very well, right? So um, this has been a big issue that feminists have tried to bring attention to. And because it was really dismissed and not given credence for so many years, I think there was a tendency for feminists to really want to believe every child who makes a claim about sexual abuse, for example. Mm-hmm. And this kind of led us into, you know, what is sometimes termed as the satanic panic epidemic, where people really believed, law enforcement, therapists, doctors, psychologists, really believed that there were these elaborate kind of sex abuse rings with kind of cult behaviors and ritualistic sacrifice and all kinds of very extreme and outlandish things And the belief was, you know, if you help kids um, remember these horrific things that they've experienced, we can uncover all of this awful abuse that is happening and bring people to justice. And very interestingly, one of the biggest proponents of the gender affirmative model of care is Dr. Diane Ehrensaft, who was one of the biggest advocates of Believe the Children during the Satanic Panic epidemic. So... You know, I think there's something about the innocence of childhood that we really want to protect. 
And if there's any risk that a child has been harmed, or let's say is harboring some deep sense of identity that we need to foster and nurture, the idea of kind of squashing that or denying that child the you know ability to quote be their authentic self or live their truth is something that is a really powerful kind of motivator for a lot of adults who are following the child's lead so you know i'm not sure where it came from but uh, like with many things i tend to think that there's a completely um you know reasonable and probably um well-intentioned reason that a lot of adults and authority figures are going down this road. But um, we we have to keep in mind that children are very impressionable. Their brains simply are not fully formed yet. And they are unable to process and understand a a lot of the complex things involved in something like a social affirmation. So even if medication is not involved, there's something incredibly um, you know, life-changing about telling a child that they are actually a different sex. Mm-hmm. They will believe us, you know, and even in terms of their cognitive development, there's something called sex constancy, which is the ability of the child to recognize that sex is immutable. So for example, like a three or four-year-old, if their sister Uh, puts on like boy pants and cuts her hair and is playing with trucks and says, I'm a boy, that child will literally think their sister has turned into a male. Mm -hmm. But by the time a kid is about eight or nine, they will recognize that the sister's playing dress up and she's still a little girl. She just has, you know, short hair and a truck or whatever. So even the cognitive abilities of the child are so limited that socially affirming a very young child definitely is i i believe it's cruel because you're setting them up to believe in something that is just literally impossible it's a fantasy that isn't true whereas making space for gender nonconformity and validating that you know you can be a little girl who likes trucks it doesn't make you any less of a girl i mean it almost sounds silly that we have to say this because we've been trying to emphasize these gender roles are restrictive and not necessarily uh, something that we have to enforce, but, you know, in comes the trans identity, um, movement and kind of just reifies all of these old, um, constructs that we've been trying to break out of. Yeah. It's ironic because in this age of, I'm using quotations, air quotes Mm -hmm. here, inclusivity and diversity and let kids be themselves and you all say this in the book as well, that in fact it seems harder than ever for kids to be gender nonconforming. I mean, I was a kid in in the 80s um, and a teenager in the 90s, and I played with trucks, and I didn't like girl things. Yeah. I hated pink. I, you know, I wore the boys' outfit to my ballet class. Like, I wanted the black shoes and the black leotard. I didn't want any of the girl things. Um, you know, and and I... I, I yeah, I, I wanted to have adventures like boys. I, 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 I didn't like the, the frilly dresses and things. And that was 
fine. I never was made to feel weird about that at all. And in fact, I think I was made to feel proud of that as a girl to be, we didn't have these terms at that time, but to be essentially a gender non-conforming girl. It was kind of a cool thing like Punky Brewster, Pippi Longstocking. Um, What happened? Why, you know, why is, why, how have things changed so drastically in what I consider to be a relatively short period of time? Yeah, I really don't know. I mean, that's what I find so kind of shocking. And, you know, what's interesting, too, like, people don't know um, that there's a direct relationship between, like, extreme gender nonconformity in childhood and later growing up to be gay, lesbian, or bisexual. And, like, you know, I, I, of course, have met so, so many women who describe having been tomboys as a kid or not necessarily fitting in with, with the girls. But, you know, when it comes to, like, gender dysphoria and how we might have classified that as childhood gender identity disorder, for example, that's often associated with growing up to be gay. So not only have we regressed in terms of flexibility around what each sex of person can and can't play with, But we've also regressed in terms of appreciating the relationship between gender and sexuality, which, um, you know, it could be argued that transitioning a child is tantamount to actual conversion therapy if that kid would have otherwise grown up to be gay, lesbian or bisexual because they're now kind of a straight, you know, cis or straight trans kid. So, you know, I don't know exactly what has happened. I do. I do wonder if part of what's going on here, you know, is a kind of homophobia that we haven't actually dealt with. Now, I want to preface this by saying in the ROGD population, as opposed to the childhood onset population, not all of these kids are gay. Many of these kids are girls who are attracted to boys and therefore see themselves as gay trans boys. So I just want to kind of be clear that not all the teenagers transitioning, I think, are gay. However, I think many of the very young children might have grown up to be gay, but they are being socially transitioned. Um, and I, I do wonder sometimes about, um, you know, there was this very public facing, and, and I know you guys saw this, of course, also in Canada, but this very public facing campaign to um, accept gay marriage and gay rights. And I think it's one thing to, in legislation, kind of create equality and rights for a group of people. But I think it's a different thing for the entire culture to really get comfortable with what that means. And sometimes I wonder if we have fooled ourselves to think that because gay marriage is legalized, for example, that we've somehow completely tackled the issue of gay acceptance and that we don't have any homophobia to worry about. But in fact, gender nonconformity, if it makes people uncomfortable, really is a sign of potential homophobia because there's nothing more gender nonconforming than actually being same-sex attracted. That is the ultimate form of gender nonconformity. So I wonder if, like we in the West have deluded ourselves to think that we are so progressive, but actually there are some really homophobic and kind of gender normative roots that are 
very ugly and maybe lie deep beneath this desire to kind of socially transition and affirm all of these gender non-conforming mm. kids. And I, I don't know if you've thought about this at all, but I've noticed that really recently we have, I think, you know, some women in particular have started talking about the porn factor. Um, and, you know, because I, I, I think that we, we do know this is just, you know, based on the many, many stories that I've heard that often for girls, their, their, their view of themselves as having gender dysphoria, their desire to transition to be so-called boys or men, um, is, is often tied to childhood sexual abuse and molestation. And so what I sort of interpret as wanting to get out of or away from that sexualized body that in their view might have been the thing or a thing that caused men to abuse them. Um, and I wonder mm-hmm. what you think about that. I wonder if you think that the fact that, you know, essentially kids now are growing up with pornography, which is really, really unfortunate to say the least, but it's, it is the reality, you know, kids are growing up online and they're seeing pornography um, well before they're able to understand what it is and without even really choosing it. And and I can imagine that yeah. that would be really disturbing to a girl. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, I, I think this is a great question. And frankly, I wish we knew more about this. Like with so many things in gender, I, I often say, gosh, I wish someone was studying this. But unfortunately, mm-hmm. there isn't a lot. Um, I, I want to preface my my answer here by saying that the types of ways that this gender dysphoria thing is manifesting are broad and vast. And so I completely agree with you that there are some kids for whom this really, really reads as like, I want to escape being sexualized by becoming a male. That's 100% happening. And on the other side of this coin, I've also seen young women who say, you know, I feel like an ugly duckling and I'm not getting any attention and I think I'm womaning right. wrong. So maybe I'm actually not a woman because I don't think I'm very pretty. Right. So so I just want to say, like, there are so many ways that this gender identity thing can serve different needs it's just so right there. It's so tangible and it can be an escape mechanism for a lot of different types of kind of distress that a young woman is having. I do think that kids encounter not just like regular porn, but pretty shocking and horif- horrifying porn. Accidentally, they stumble upon it. Sometimes they are searching for it, but it is really, I think, a shock to the system. And you know, I can't, I can't imagine that for some kids seeing those types of images and that material makes them think, I don't want to be a part of that. And I would even suspect, Megan, that this sometimes happens for boys, because, you know, if a boy is a kind of a, a, like a sensitive and sweet type of kid, and he sees porn that that is quite degrading or demeaning or violent, I can imagine that he's thinking to himself, I don't want to do that to somebody. I don't want to see myself in that role. So I, I'm sure that that probably plays plays a role here. Um, I've been, you know, able to follow kind of the, the stories of some of my own clients and my own patients. And what I have noticed is that sometimes porn, I think, plays an initial role in 
you know, kind of adding to the adolescent confusion about sex and sexuality and the body and all of these things. But luckily, I think when kids, at least in my experience, have kind of a full and robust, healthy life otherwise, they're able to move past it and it, you know, doesn't seem to be something that lingers as a really big issue. Um, but, you know, I think the more vulnerable that a kid is and the less outlets he or she has and the more kind of internet dependent they are, you know, the likelihood perhaps of there becoming an issue around pornography probably mm-hmm. is higher. I wonder what other what other problems you're seeing come up for teens these days i mean are are teens genuinely struggling with for example anxiety and depression more than previous generations i think at this point you know you can't really argue that there is a real mental health crisis going on i mean kids anxieties are actually higher and not only because i think we're defining more things as anxiety so you know there's no doubt that kids are struggling much more to kind of function in environments and domains of their life that previous generations just didn't have as much trouble with. Um, So, you know, some of the things that I'm seeing include a, a great deal of social anxiety, kind of like fear of interacting with other people and being incredibly over analytical about you know, every word you say and every move you make and how people perceive you. And um, I think there's also uh, a struggle with kind of developing the life skills that help young people to become independent. So, you know, we, we, we know this statistically as well. Kids are not getting their driver's licenses as soon. They're not engaging in kind of like risky behaviors as soon, which, you know, of course, depending on who you ask and how you ask the question, that might seem like a really great thing. Like the, okay, kids aren't having unprotected sex as much. They're not, you know, doing drugs and alcohol as much. But, you know, on the other side of that coin, what we're seeing is kind of an infantilization that kids almost to put themselves through. And, you know, there are probably many societal factors as to why this is happening, but those are a couple of the things that I see. And additionally, you know, I think that the next, um, I think, big area of exploration that we as a, a society and as a culture need to be thinking about is why are young people so attached mm-hmm. to labels? This goes beyond oh, yeah. gender. I mean, there are kids who are like thrilled to go to a psychiatric facility and get a bunch of diagnoses. There's a kind of glamorization of mental health problems and a real attachment to all of these diagnostic labels and categories. And, um, you know, I, I, I think it's fascinating. I think it's really troubling. And I think the way social media and online communities are shaping mental health conditions, um, is an inextricable and kind of like now it's just part and parcel with what therapists have to understand. Like we cannot separate our patients' mental health issues from how social media and the internet and online communities shape that manifestation of distress. Um, I, I want to talk about puberty blockers and, and the impact of puberty blockers and how puberty blockers work. Um, it's, I mean, these conversations 
can be complex because a lot of people will say that puberty blockers just sort of puts a pause on development. So kids and hopefully along with their parents can, can, you know, decide where they want to go with that. And there's a lot of denial about the fact that, or the idea that puberty blockers might cause permanent change or permanent harm. What's the truth there? What do, what do puberty blockers do both in the short and in the long term? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm not a physician, so I don't want to speak kind of outside of my lane. What I can say is that I think because puberty blockers have been used in the past with precocious puberty, so let's say a child starts puberty at the age of five or six, um, physicians have used these drugs to halt the development of their puberty until the child is kind of of an appropriate age. So maybe around 10, they would come off puberty blockers and then their puberty will resume. So I think theoretically, using that information, a lot of clinicians have concluded that for gender dysphoria, puberty blockers operate in the same manner. So theoretically, yes, it could just be a pause button. But what's really interesting especially kind of given the desistance stats that we talked about earlier, right? So let's say a child has a child has childhood onset gender dysphoria. If they are not given puberty blockers and they're not affirmed, 60 to 90% of them historically will grow out of it and just become comfortable with their bodies, right? But if you put a kid on puberty blockers, that number drops dramatically. And almost 99% of kids who go on blockers continue on to cross sex hormones. So where is that 60 to 90% of kids that would have outgrown it? It seems that in practice, puberty blockers are actually the start button of a lifelong kind of transition process. So this is really, really important. And in addition, you know, when you put a kid on puberty blockers and follow that up with cross sex hormones, like in 99% of the cases, they're, they're infertile. They have bone density issues. They can get osteoporosis wow. as a child. They can have cognitive development problems. There isn't lots of data on that, but there's some. And this is going to create sexual dysfunction, you know? And as many of your listeners may know, and many people may know, a kid like Jazz Jennings is a male child who was put on puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones and kind of was this... Um, test case for everybody to watch on the reality TV show about jazz and the the family. And what we saw was that by putting jazz on puberty blockers, there wasn't even enough penile tissue to later perform the surgery that was now kind of like an inevitable part of this kid's pathway. So by using puberty blockers, it actually seems like we are putting a kid directly on a path that is at least in practical terms, like nobody really gets off of it. So I, I have a very big problem with that because I think what we're doing is we are retroactively trying to predict like which kid will and won't transition, but actually we're making it be that all of them transitioned. So it's really playing with a kid's future to put them on puberty blockers. And when parents are told this is a pause button. They are being misled because practically speaking, as I shared, the stats bear out otherwise. Yeah. 
So since when when we first connected over email to schedule an interview, since then the Genspect conference happened, which was mm-hmm. you know really impressive in its scope. It was a huge conference. There were some really amazing speakers that you had. Were you involved in organizing Genspect the conference? No. Okay. No, I was not. Um, no. I mean, I I guess one of the things that was interesting about that conference is that. I think that even just a few years ago, something like that would have been much more heavily contested than it is now. That must give you some hope. Absolutely. And I mean, to hold it in a a city like Denver, Colorado, where um, I think absolutely a few years back, we could not have had a conference like that. And it was really incredible because something that I'm sure you've observed as well, Megan, is that you know, in the early days, um, back when we started to think and talk and write about these things, it felt like a very small kind of niche of concerned parties were involved and discussing this. And what I've noticed now is that, you know, Denver's a great example of this. So many other thinkers, writers, um, authors, journalists have become aware of what's happening with childhood gender transition and men in women's prisons and like all of these kind of knock on effects of gender identity theory being adopted like wholesale into our, you know, societies. And so I think the, you know, this is starting to be um, a bigger and bigger and bigger kind of group of concerned citizens. And it was amazing to see, you know, people who just recently learned about what was happening with gender and decided this is such a huge deal that they want to get involved. So I absolutely think there's reason to be hopeful. Um, I think here in the U.S., gender is going to be something talked about in the kind of presidential elections coming up. And I think this has become a much more front and center issue that everyone is having to grapple with. And I think that's a good thing because I really, um, this might be Pollyanna, but I just believe reality and truth has to win out. Like, this is not sustainable to have kind of a society-wide fantasy and lie. And, you know, just I want to say that, you know, if if an individual, a trans-identified individual says, you know, I'm a trans man, I understand and recognize that I'm female, I know that my gender dysphoria could have had a lot of kind of reasons it developed. I don't think that I'm literally a male. And I understand that there are serious medical trade-offs with the masculinization of my body and changing myself with drugs. I think that's a very grounded reality-based position to take. What I'm not okay with is the kind of societal lie that you know, if you're a trans person, it's because you were actually always, you know, the sex you say that you are and like all of this fantasy stuff that really sets people up for huge disappointment and um, deception. So I, I feel hopeful that as as more and more people start to investigate what's going on, um, the truth and reality will win out and something's got to give. I hope you're right. Um, what are some key pieces of advice you offer to parents in, in this book to kids who are saying they're trans? Yeah, well, our advice really depends on a lot of factors. And one of the most important factors is the age of the child. 
So, you know, as we say in the, in the preface of the book, we are explicitly a pro-parent book. And we think that one of the, the greatest kind of disasters of this gender identity movement is kind of separating from parents from their instinct about what is best for their child and what they know. So, I mean, first and foremost, no matter how old your child is, we tell you, you know, in the vast majority of cases, parents know their kids best. And you should not um, let a professional kind of force you into doing something that your gut is saying, you know, wrong, 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 wrong. So number one, trust your instinct. And then if you have a younger child or a younger teen, it's really important to take the reins and be a loving but assertive presence in trying to help your steal your child in a, a healthier direction. And we, we encourage families to really think about their connection and relationships because one of the kind of saddest types of stories are the stories of estrangement where like an older teen or a young adult child kind of makes ultimatums of their family or starts a medical process and kind of refuses to engage around it and then distances him or herself. So the relationship is incredibly important and it just becomes a little bit trickier and more sensitive the older your child gets. And, you know, we talk a lot in the book about mitigating unhelpful influences. So in addition to that, leaning in and working on your connection and love and um, staying connected and close, it's also really important, especially if you have a young child, to think about what influences exist in their life that make it impossible for them to think more clearly or to be flexible or to potentially desist. And if you are, for example, working with a therapist that is really pushing affirmation, or your friend is online, or your child, sorry, is online like five hours a day watching transition YouTube timeline videos, it, you you are going to be swimming upstream. So really being um, deliberate about the inputs in your child's life is another important thing. You know, the book is full of um, sample scripts to like how to have conversations with your child, ways to deal with things like therapists and doctors and schools, and um, even ways to talk to your own relatives or extended family about this. So we hope that the book gives parents some really tangible tools that they can take with them. That's great. Again, I think that so many parents are going to be so relieved to discover this book and be relieved that that they have some some tools in, in what I think is a very distressing time for a lot of parents and families. Yeah. Where can people find the book, which again, for those listening is called when your kids say they're trans, a guide for parents. Yeah. So when kids say they're trans is available on Amazon, on Barnes and Nobles. You can also go to our website, which I'll be sure to share with you so you Great. can put it in the notes. Um, and it is out in the UK and in the US. And um, you can also check out, uh, like like you and many others, we, Stella and I have a podcast, Gender, A Wider Lens, where we also talk about a lot of uh, issues relevant to parents. And um, if you look me up, Sasha Ayad, you find my website. I also have a private group for parents where I kind of talk parents through some of these very kind of practical day-to-day -day issues and do live Q&As and things like that. So we have a lot of resources that we hope will help any parents who need it. Great. Thank you so much. It was so great to talk to you um, and to connect with you. I hope that someday we can do that in real life. Yeah. <laughs> 
I would love that, Megan. Thank you so much. And thank you for just your work on this issue for many, many years. It's really, I'm sure you've helped a lot of people understand this better. Oh, thank you. I'm Megan Murphy. Thanks for tuning in to Feminist Current. You can find us online at feministcurrent.com, tweet at us at feministcurrent, or send us an email at info at feministcurrent.com. We are hosted by Spotify, and you can subscribe to the Feminist Current podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. You can even give us five stars and a review on iTunes. Feminist Current is produced and hosted by myself, Megan Murphy. We have been ad-free, sponsorship-free, wealthy, investor-free, and fully independent since 2012. If you enjoyed this podcast and if you value independent women's media by women, for women, no compromises, please consider making a donation to support our work. Just visit feministcurrent.com and click the donate button.